Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. This morning we're wrapping up the Get Back In series. Get back in the scripture. So a couple of weeks ago I had a 10-point sermon. Well, this morning I did not do that to you. It's 13. Um, But it's 13, I think, good points, good 13 narrative points. What I mean by that is this is a narrative. It's telling uh, what went on, and we get to see an incredible work, probably unprecedented, at least in their time, of God in the people of Israel. This morning we are getting back into Scripture. That's our call this morning in Nehemiah chapter 8. See, this chapter, uh, chapter 8, represents a major transition in how God speaks to his people. Prior to Samuel, the, the prophet, the priest, and he served in a lot of ways. He bridged between the judges and the kings, so he had a, a unique role in Scripture. Prior to Samuel, God primarily spoke directly to individuals. That wasn't always the case, but I use the word primarily. He talked to Moses directly. He talked to Abraham directly. We go on back to the patriarchs. He spoke to them directly. He spoke to David. He spoke to others directly. Primarily, God spoke to people directly when he, wanted, when he had a word for them, when he had a, a command for them. Samuel begins to uh, put into clearer focus the way God would speak to the, his people for then, oh gosh, 1,600 years thereabout, maybe, maybe 1,400 years, as he started to speak through prophets. There were people who were designated to speak for the Lord, and that's what prophets did. There was some future-telling, some foretelling, but mostly the prophets were forth-tellers. They spoke the word of the Lord. That was their job, and it was certainly the job of prophets in the New Testament. And we see that sort of blending. These aren't hard lines. They, they overlap greatly, but we see that overlap uh, sort of separate and, and become a, a harder break, though again, not completely, with Elijah. Elijah is kind of the the place where uh, no longer does God speak to individuals, a direct revelation, something outside of what he would have told other people, but he now speaks almost exclusively from Elijah on through the prophets. Now, remember, all this time they had written scripture. They had the Pentateuch, the the Torah. They had psalms that they sang. They had written scripture throughout this time. But primarily, again, right, primarily he spoke to individuals up through Samuel, up to Elijah. Elijah represents a harder break where God speaks only to the prophets, no longer directly to the individuals. And then we get to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 represents another hard break, again, not completely, but primarily, Because once the people of Israel get back to 
Israel, get back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls for the next 400, 450 years, there are no more prophets. There's no more prophecy. The next prophet that comes along after the last one, after Malachi, is John the Baptist. 400 years with no prophecy. And God in that time and from then on spoke primarily through Scripture, almost exclusively. Jesus comes and he is the word and when he speaks it's the word and then we get inspired inerrant scripture from the apostles and and, and all that goes on but God still then primarily speaks through scripture. Ezra is the beginning uh, or the the uh, again the hard break with some fuzziness where God begins to speak through scripture and it's Nehemiah 8 that we see it most clearly. Ezra is not in this passage, getting a word from the Lord to give to the people, as prophets would do, not spoken word to give to the people. He is basing it on God's written word to give to the people. At this point in our, our timeline, the, uh, the walls have been rebuilt around Jerusalem. Uh, the temple is, of course, completed. It has been for a while. And the exiles have returned from Babylon, Babylonia, Persia, whatever it is now. They have returned from exile and come home. And now they are beginning to worship again. At this point, the temple, though it will always be important, though it will always be a, a focus of the Jewish religion, the, the center of worship becomes synagogues and the reading and teaching of God's word in those synagogues. The temple even begins to fade in importance from what it has been as the written word of God takes precedent over so many other things. Over these other ways he's spoken, rather. Ezra 7.10 tells us about Ezra, gives us a little snapshot of the heart of Ezra as, as a, basically as a pastor to these people. Ezra 7.10 says... Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and and ordinances in Israel. That's what Ezra had decided in his heart to do, what he believed God had led him to do, his new role in this uh, rebuilt Jerusalem and this slowly rebuilding Israel. We get that image of Ezra, we, we know that's his heart, we know what, that's it, that that is his intent, but Nehemiah chapter 8 isn't really about Ezra. The, words, the, the word people, just in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 8, is used 13 times. The people, 13 times. This passage, Nehemiah 8 is not about Ezra, it is about the people. It is about the people's relationship to Scripture. It is about the people's response to Scripture. Ezra is a conduit, he is the teacher, he is the, the source for the teaching, but the passage isn't about him, it is about how the people heard the Word of God and responded to it. We see an image here, we see a picture of what should be our relationship to Scripture. We see 
what it should mean to us and uh, how, it, uh, how we respond to it, what it does to us, etc. We're going to look at a number of things this morning. It's a beautiful picture that Nehemiah 8 gives us of an individual response that leads to a corporate revival. This, in Nehemiah 8, 9, 10, actually moving forward a few chapters, is a picture of revival. And that revival starts with the people in God's Word. I've, uh, it has been my focus as a pastor forever, as a pastor, to present God's Word, to preach God's Word. I, I, as I've told you before, I don't like preaching topical sermons too much because the, the topic can become the center and the Scripture doesn't. Because we need to hear Scripture. Now, I, I need to teach it. I need to have the same uh, uh, commitment as Ezra to study God's Word, to obey it, and then to teach it statutes and ordinances. But the people have to internalize it. I've, I've, I've mentioned to you before that if, if I can get you to have a greater understanding of Scripture, if I can take you through Scripture enough times, if, if we can do it on Sunday morning and through D groups and then through our connect groups and then other times as well in your own reading where you are just internalizing Scripture, you will be amazed down the road when an event occurs in your life, when something comes along and you are able to recall, if not a quote, word for word, with the address, at least the idea of a scripture passage that you read. That, that's revival. That is God doing something in the hearts of his people through his word. And of course, as the Holy Spirit leads us to truth and recalls those things, but we don't recall them unless they're in there to begin with. I know you prayed before tests in school. Lord, I know I didn't study anything, but help me pick the right answers. It just doesn't work that way in real life, though. And your test grades probably prove that. I know mine did. So we see revival begin, at least in part, because the people dove into Scripture. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 8, whole thing together here. It's actually beginning with the last half of the last verse in chapter 7, uh, verse 73. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon. Y'all think my sermons are long. From daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. 
All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this uh, purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Moshalam. And no, I will not try to read those all again. Thank you. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. A bunch more names who were Levites, it's just easier, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor... Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters, just as it is written. The people went out, brought back branches, and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. I'm going to go ahead and use the word, Amy. It was unprecedented that the people had done this, certainly in their time. And there was tremendous joy. Verse 18, Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day there was an assembly according to the ordinance. I see 13 responses here. 13 examples of our relationship to Scripture, to God's Word. If we are going to get back in, if if we are going to experience revival, then we must have this sort of response, this sort of relationship to God's Word. Number one, desire. We gotta want it. We have to. 
We can't do it because it's required. We can't do it because it's a program that we do at the church. We have to want to be in Scripture. Look at what it says here in verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2 of Nehemiah 8. All the people were gathered together, and they asked. Remember, I told you it was the people. 13 times in the first 12 verses, the people. The people asked. The people went to Ezra. They asked him to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, the priest, he brought it, and he read it through all of, to all of them. Everyone who could listen with understanding, men, women, and children to a certain age that could listen with understanding were there. They had a desire for the Scriptures. When they didn't have it for a long time, they almost didn't know what they were missing. But I think they actually did. I think that's why the response was so strong to it. They knew what they had been missing. They knew that God's Word had not been prominent in Babylon. They knew that God's Word had not been prominent in their lives for a long time. When they get to the part about the festival that they hadn't done since Joshua, since before they came into the Promised Land. Help me out with my timeline. As somebody who's just read those, Joshua coming in, uh, I'm, I'm looking at you, kid, uh, 1400 B.C., 1300 B.C., something along in there. We're about a thousand years later that God's word had been weak, weakened. His word is not weak. Their response to it had been. I mean, they went into exile because they didn't obey, y'all. God's word had not been prominent, whether it was spoken directly to some folks, whether it was the prophets, or whether it was written scripture. And now the people had a desire to be in God's word. And they asked Ezra, bring it here so we can hear it read. The second response relationship to scripture is that, that of attentiveness. Verse 3, while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read it out, out of it from daybreak until noon. Daybreak until noon. That's six hours. Give or take 10 or 15 minutes. Six hours. And if he started reading at daybreak, that means they got up before daybreak. And they listened attentively. They made sure they heard every word that God had spoken. They made sure they were hearing it correctly. And we're going to get to the parts here in just a minute where it had to be translated and had to be taught to them. But they were on the edge of their seat. They desired it, and then when they got it, they listened to it attentively. I don't know about you, but when I finally get to go to a really nice restaurant, and I get to order that filet, mignon, filet, steak, that $45, $50 piece of meat, and maybe 
some of those really good twice-baked mashed potatoes that come with it in some restaurants. And if we're really feeling flush, if somebody's been nice to us, giving us a little money on the side, get that lobster tail with it. I have desired those things. And when I get that meal, I am attentive to that meal. I don't get that meal and go, this is great. Or toss it to the side. Or cram it down as soon as I can. I am so glad I got that out of the way. Don't have to eat that food anymore. Oh, no. It is, a, it is a joyous time. It is a time of celebration. It is a time of attentiveness to something so mundane as a hunk of cow and a sea roach. Why can I not be that attentive to Scripture when the time comes? Why can I not desire it the same way? And be attentive when it's taught. They desired it. They were attentive to it. They reproached Scripture, God's Word, with honor. Verses 4 and 5. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. If you go to Baptist churches, primarily, we have a stage. Methodist churches, most Protestant churches, and, and, and some Protestant-ish churches, the pulpit's going to be in the center, and, and it's going to be up on a stage. It's going to be elevated, so you can see, and so you can hear, and so you can be attentive. But if you look back at old churches, less Protestant, more Catholic, or more uh, Anglican, and, and, and the, the, those sorts of denominations, if you've ever seen, say, um, gosh, is it Westminster Abbey? Do they have one like this? The pulpit's on the side. Have you ever seen the churches like that? Where it's, it's over here and you got a little spiral staircase, but it's going to be like a story and a half. I'm going back to the camera, John. You don't have to. Sorry. Uh, you, 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 you don't have to. It's not a stage. It's, it is like a perch. Now, it's off to the side, interestingly enough. We as Baptists put it in the center because we believe, uh, we as Protestants, we believe that what's most important is God's Word. And they honored it in that way. They built up the stage. They, they had folks on his uh, right and folks on his left who were going to be a part of what he was doing to give it the honor it was due as people standing there, sitting there, whatever, probably standing, just like the people, saying, this is how important it is. We are all going to be up here. And when he opened the book in few of the people, they could see it, it says, and in verse 5, as he opened it, all the people stood up. The implication here is that for how many hours? This many. They stood while he preached. Now, there is no biblical mandate to stand when the scripture is read. If you were here a few weeks ago uh, when uh, Reggie Oje preached, he asked you. We've had pastors or guest preachers that will ask folks to stand while we read read the Bible, and, and that's great, and that's fine. I have no problem with it. There's not a mandate for it, but there is a certain amount of honor 
in that, and at the very least, if not with our body, at least with our minds and our emotions, we should stand up when the word of God is spoken, when the word of God is taught, and say, this is vital for me and for my church. I am not going to miss this. I desire it. I am going to be attentive to it. And in my attentiveness, I am going to honor God's word. Number four, we see from the people, agreement. Verse 6a, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. They agreed with it. Now, we can, we can say amen and not mean it. I understand that. But that's not what we have here. And, and it's not just, well, you know what? That scripture's right. I, I'm impressed that, they, that God got what he wrote right. That, that wasn't the kind of agreement they were making. They weren't fact-checking it and say, oh, yes, that is true. They are saying, yes, I am, by agreeing... I am committing by saying, yes, this is true. I am then saying now, therefore, I have a responsibility. If I am encountered with truth, then I must live according to that truth. So when the people are saying, amen, amen, they are admitting, i got to do something now. They agreed with Scripture. They amen, amen it. Not as a show, not as uh, a reflex, but as a heart cry, yes, I have to do something now that I've heard it. And number five tells us what they do, worship. Further, our relationship to Scripture, Nehemiah 6b, uh, 8 Chapter 8, verse 6b, the second half of that same verse. They knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They got to the point where they desired it, they were attentive to it, they honored it, now they've heard it and they agree with it. Well, so what are you going to do? What is going to be your response? The response of the people to hear the word of God from his scriptures for the first time in a very, very, very long time. If you remember, if you think back through your reading of, of the Kings, Second Kings, I guess it is, you remember Josiah, King Josiah, Southern Kingdom. The temple worship had fallen by the wayside. Things were awful. They, there had been really awful kings over and over and over. Kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Josiah instituted reforms and said, hey, y'all, we've got to clean up the church. We've got to clean up the temple. We've got to straighten this all out and get back to what we're supposed to be doing. And while they were in there, they found Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy. They, they found, and oh my goodness. We haven't been doing anything right for a long time. This is not the first time Scripture has caused major change in Israel. But it wasn't but just a king or two later, and it fell by the wayside. 
And if you look at the history, it really goes all the way back to David before. So it was like David, Josiah, Ezra for when God was really working among the kings of Israel. Yes, there were high points among all the the low points. But scripture shows up only a few times. And this time, when after a thousand years, the people are hearing it again for the first time, they respond in worship. They knelt low and worshiped their Lord, the Lord with their faces to the ground. What do we do when we hear God's word? I tend to argue. I don't know about you. But I tend to come up with all the reasons why, yes, I agree with that passage, of course, amen, amen. But, it, but in this situation, Lord, it doesn't really apply. It, I, but you understand what I'm going through right now and how that's not. But God, you, you really didn't mean what you said instead of worshiping, responding in faith. Responding by kneeling low and worshiping the Lord. Number six, clarity. The greatest compliment I have ever gotten that I can think of at the moment was a, let me do the math, 12, 13 year old girl hearing from a parent that said, she, the 12, 13-year-old girl told the parent, I understand what he's preaching. I can get no greater compliment. I didn't go in that Sunday or any Sunday to say, okay, I, I need to really make this simple this Sunday. I go in, do my best just to preach God's word. But it was clear enough by God's guidance and the work of his Holy Spirit in me on that Sunday morning that a 12 or 13 year old girl could say, I understood what he was talking about. That, that is the goal of every preacher, that every person in hearing distance, hearing range, says, I understood what he meant. He didn't put me to sleep. He, he didn't make me mad. Well, I made you mad, oh well. Uh, but, you know, not real mad. Mad at yourself, not at me, right? Uh, he, didn't, he didn't do this. He didn't do that. He, he didn't distract me. He, he preached God's word, and it took me deep enough after X number of years in the Bible that I learned things I hadn't learned before. And the 13-year-old, 12-year-old, the kids in the room hear it as well and understand it as well. That should be our relationship to Scripture. It was their relationship. And it took some work sometimes because all these names in verses 7 and 8 who were Levites, they turned around and explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. So it was a tag team thing for Ezra and the Levites. Looks like he didn't preach for six hours, but the people listened for six hours. You kind of went through a rotation of preachers. They explained the law. They read out of the book of the law, translating 
because the book was written in Hebrew, and at this point, most of the people would have spoken only Aramaic, which was the lingua franca of the day. It was what everybody spoke from Persia to, to up north toward uh, what would have been, I don't know which empire was up there, toward Greece, and Greek wasn't the language of the day yet. That would be a couple of hundred more years. Right now, it was Aramaic. So these Levites had to read it in Hebrew and translate it into Aramaic. You know, it's the same thing we do, right? We have our English Bibles. And then give the meaning so that people could understand what was read. Clarity was important. Clarity is important. That's why you need your connect group teachers. That's why we need, that's why I don't preach without reading people who are smarter than me. There are a lot of them. And looking at commentaries and saying, what did these guys who know much more than me about Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, if that's what it's written in, what did they say about it? For clarity. We come to God's Word expecting to understand. And once we have clarity, number seven, we have conviction absolutely should be our relationship. They've already fallen in worship. They already had the response of worship back in number five. But now it's not just a matter of, wow, we see how great you are, God. We see how incredible your word is. But we also see how much we fail to keep your word. And they were convicted by it. Verse 9 Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Why were they mourning? They, they were weeping. You, you could say it was they were weeping for joy, but you don't mourn for joy. It doesn't work that way. They were convicted. They heard God's word and they knew we don't match up. I don't match up. This scripture doesn't describe me. It describes God. It describes the relationship I should have. But it doesn't describe me. So they mourned. They wept. Nehemiah and the leaders tell them, don't do that, have joy. Well, why? Certainly they should have been convicted, and they were. But have joy when the Holy Spirit convicts you after you've gone to Scripture. What we want to do, what is our tendency, what is my tendency, as I said earlier, I may be convicted, and I may mourn my sin, but then, often, I get mad that i got to live up to that scripture. I get upset that I am now, I've got one more thing I've got to fix in my life. And Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites say, don't, don't mourn, don't be upset that you are convicted. Rather, be joyful that God has shown you the truth. That is mercy. That is grace. That is God saying, here's you, 
and where you are. Here's scripture, and here's how you don't match up. Now that you know, you can. Match up. Be joyful that God has spoken to you. Be joyful that God has come into your midst with His Word and shown you where you fail. Because that is an opportunity to change and be more like Jesus. And so the people respond to that. Verses 10 through 12, they respond with celebration. Our next relationship with Scripture. He said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, send portions, send presents to those who have nothing prepared. Today is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Never does Scripture say the grief of the Lord is your strength. Yes, we respond in conviction to Scripture and we change because of that. But what will change us is the joy in the fact that God has reached down into our lives, into our hearts, into the recesses of our soul, into the back room where we have kept things hidden and locked. We're kind of like the people who live in urban areas and they're scared and they've got the doors clack, 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 clack. You know, they got 30 locks on the door. And we think, that'll keep God out. And he, boom, kicks that door down and says, I got the lights on in here, fella. I know what's in here. Turn them off, lock the doors. I still know what's in here. Rejoice that I can clean this closet out for you. We do it at our homes, right? We've got that room or that drawer or that cabinet that is just the junk drawer. And we don't ever want to go in it. And we don't ever want people to see it. But when we finally open that door and clean it out, it's a pain, and sometimes it causes pain, but the joy of just finally getting it done. And that's what God does with us. He says, let the joy of this conviction, let the joy of what God has told you today be your strength. And the Levites quieted the people, saying, be still, don't grieve. Three times. It's almost like the people aren't hearing it. They can't hear the opportunity for joy over the grief of their conviction. Let me say here, oh, may we be so convicted of our sin that the Lord has to then convince us of our joy. I'm afraid we are too quick to move over a conviction and say, whoop, glad I got that over with. And we don't spend time in conviction. Maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't come out of our mourning and grief over our sin until God shows up and says, come on. Now it's time for joy. Hagar didn't get off the auction block until Hosea had bought her and brought her back into his home, lifted her up out of her sinfulness and said, you have been, in so many words, you have been redeemed. 
He loved her the whole time. The truth of her sinfulness and his faithfulness were true the entire time. But she never experienced the joy of coming out of that sin until Hosea grabbed her by the hand, pulled her up, and took her home. Maybe there are times when we should spend a little more time on the auction block, mourning our sin, and wait until God gives us joy instead of moving on too quickly. Number nine, we see repetition. Repetition, uh, returning is another good word. On the second day, that was just the first day. That's just the first day of revival that they did all that. On the second day, the family heads of all the people. You know, the people who are in charge of leading their homes in the faith. They come back and say, y'all, we got to learn more. That was wonderful. That was a great movement of God among our people. But they decided that wasn't enough. They couldn't have just a Sunday, a good church, and leave the other six days alone. Or treat church as a once-a-month idea. Treat Scripture and gathering with God's people as a, if something better doesn't come along, then we'll go to church idea. The heads of the family said, no, we got to spend more time in this. So they showed up for repetition. They returned with the priest and the Levites, they assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. That was a great six-hour sermon yesterday. We need some more. Preach on, brother. We have to go back to God's word. We have talked about this in our D groups. We've talked about it over and over we read Scripture and read Scripture and read Scripture, and it can be the same Scriptures, and yet each time God shows us something new. Things that we never... First of all, we see things we never read before. The number of conversations I've had with y'all through these D-group readings where they said, I never knew it said that. And I know I've read that story before, and I'm all, me too. Because God speaks anew through repetition. Number 10, when we repeat, when we go back, we have exactly what I just said. We have discovery. Verse 14, they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. This would have been after the day of atonement. This would have been after the, the Passover. And they were supposed to mimic what it was like to travel the 40 years in the wilderness. They, they live in tents for a few days. Shelters, uh, uh, olive branches and bamboo and leaves and vines and whatever to, to memorialize what the people had gone through during the wilderness wandering. After spending some time in Scripture, six-hour sermon one day, study with the, the leaders the next day, the people discover something they had forgotten to do, and this is what they had forgotten to do, since Joshua. A thousand years since they had celebrated this, according to Scripture. 
That's what God will do when you go back to Scripture, even Scriptures that you have read before. Oh, Michael, you preached on that already. Yeah, I know. And God will do something new through it this time. You know, the, the, the joke is, the preacher who preached the sermon, and then the next week he preached the same sermon, and the third week he preached the, ne- the same sermon, and, and people started murmuring, and the fourth week uh, there was less murmuring, and they got the deacons together. Somebody got to go talk to him, and the fifth Sunday he preaches the same sermon, and they go to him and say, well, why do you keep preaching the same sermon over and over and over? We've heard it, and his, his response was, yeah, but you haven't changed yet. That's what repetition does. No, I'm not going to preach this sermon next week. But repetition leads us to discover new ways. It's almost self-abusive if you're not real careful. Well, I've got to read Scripture to see how else I've messed up today. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not an Eeyore thing, right? Put away your grief. Put away your conviction and have joy that God has shown you. But we go to Scripture and we say, God, how can I be more like you? Through discovery. But we don't stop there. Number 11, our next relationship is discipleship. When we discover something, when God speaks afresh to us from His Word, we then take that new, not a new word, but a new word to us, a new conviction, and we do what they did in verse 15. So they, the people, the family heads, proclaimed and spread the news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hill country, bring back the branches, do all this stuff, let's make shelters just like Scripture says to. So when we read Scripture, when we are confronted with a new truth, our response should be to make disciples. And how do we make disciples? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. It sounds like a Bible verse from somewhere. I think maybe in Matthew toward the end, 28, 19 and 20. Go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all I commanded you. That's what happens when we read Scripture. We tell other people. We tell our families. We tell our friends. And I've said this before, the past six to eight months, the number of times people have come to me during the week, texted me, called, whatever. Michael, I was reading in the D group lesson this week. I was reading this passage, and it just floored me how it built on whatever you preached last week. Or when I say something in the sermon, that's exactly what I was thinking as I read this. God is doing something. God is, we are discipling each other. Because that's what we're supposed to do. But that discipleship then leads to fellowship, number 12. So they went out and they brought the branches. They made the shelters. And the whole community lived in these shelters. They had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua. And there was tremendous joy. They did this together. They fellowshiped. Now remember, back before the hurricane, you remember that 20 years ago? Back before the hurricane, as we were working through Philippians, we talked about fellowship was not a party, it was a job. The fellowship of the ring, right? Lord of the rings. 
It wasn't because they were all the same, they all agreed on everything, but they had one unified purpose. That was their fellowship. That was the reason for their existence. That's the reason they got together. The reason we get together in fellowship is for the work, for the work of discipleship. Do you think they got together as they celebrated the, the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Tabernacle, and sat around and talked about football? Now, I'm sure it came up. I'm sure the most recent series they had watched on Netflix came up in conversation, spending hours upon hours with each other for a few days. But the purpose of their gathering was not to shoot the bull. It was to talk about God's Word, to be discipled, to hear how God was working in their lives. Because there was tremendous joy. Football is fun. TV is fun. Jesus is joy. Discipleship is joy. When our team wins, we're happy. When the hero of the TV show wins, we're happy. But when Jesus wins in our lives, we have joy. You don't get joy from life, you get joy from God. And when they fellowshiped, they had joy. And then they didn't just have repetition, they didn't just have discipleship, they had consistency, number 13. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day, from the first day to the last. They celebrated this festival for seven days. On the eighth day, there was an assembly according to the ordinance. When we get 400 years later, and we get to Jerusalem, 0 A.D., 30 A.D., and we hear about the Pharisees, they were rigid in their adherence to the law. Too rigid. They had built a law around the law. A fence around the law. And making it impossible for, for people to experience joy from God's word. Let's get at that out of the way. But, God's word was central. 400 years later, God's word was still central. Why? Because of consistency. Yes, we can abuse it. We can say things that Scripture doesn't say, and we do. That's why we have different denominations. Because we disagree on primarily the things Scripture doesn't say. Or the things we make Scripture say, or interpret a particular way. But consistency is what allowed them, 400 years later, to be, still be centered on God's Word. And it started... That day under Ezra. I said 13. There's one more, but we're not going to talk about the scripture it pertains to. It is confession. Chapter 9 is a chapter of confession. The people, again, after this festival, after these seven days, after this revival, they go back to confession again. And chapter 10 is a chapter of commitment. We're going to be different. We're going to change. Because of a sermon. Because of time spent in God's Word. There's a confession that is necessary from every believer this morning. 
I don't know what it is because I don't know your heart, but I know when you impact or when you, you come into contact with Scripture, it impacts you and leads you, should lead you to change. There is also a confession that this sort of reaction to Scripture should lead unbelievers to. Michael, I don't have that response to Scripture. This response to Scripture, 1 13, if you are keeping track and, and writing notes, that is a Holy Spirit led response. And only a Holy Spirit led response. Sometimes Scripture can make you mad, and that's just not the Holy Spirit. Sometimes Scripture can even make you realize you need to change, and that not be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead you to understanding your need for Jesus, believer and unbeliever. So this morning, as a believer, you may need to confess what Scripture has told you today. But maybe as an unbeliever, you need to confess Jesus Christ so that Scripture will actually speak to you in the way that we were talking about. You need to come to Jesus, have salvation through Jesus Christ so that your relationship with God is clean and clear. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, confession. Yep, everybody sinned, but more importantly, I have sinned. The wages of sin is death. No getting around it. I can't do anything about it. I will die because of my sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know where we learn that? Scripture. Scripture shows us that God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At my worst, Jesus loved me and died for me. Even if I haven't gotten to my worst yet, Jesus loved me and died for me. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You are saved if you confess. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. That's it. That is salvation. And that is what every one of us needs. We need to either remember it as believers and live like it, or we need to experience it for the first time. Whatever your decision is, we're going to have that time to do it in just a minute. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word that continues to speak. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit as we read your scriptures. And God, may we all have the conviction and the joy of that conviction. May we have the, the realization of where we fail and then the joy in the fact that you in your grace and mercy have shown us what we need and give us through your Holy Spirit the means to change. God, speak to every heart here, to the believers who need to allow Scripture to change their lives, change areas of their lives, to the unbeliever who needs to hear the words of Romans, hear the words of Jesus saying, come to me and be saved. May you do a work in this place this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is your time of response. We're going to stand and sing, and maybe you're feeling conviction, and maybe you need to hang out there for a little bit. But maybe God is calling you to respond in joy to the conviction as he changes your heart. I don't know what God's doing in your life. Only you can know that. But we pray that you will respond as we stand and sing and do business with him this morning.